By now, you will have noticed inside your bulletin, on an insert there, the list of East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church's top 12. Top 12 scriptures, that is. Now, this, of course, is not a definitive list. There are certainly many, many more scripture texts that have been formative for us as individuals and as a congregation. This list simply represents those biblical texts that rose to the top in our Sunday school class discussions this past fall. And many of these 12 passages, plus a few more, will give shape to our worship during the month of November. I want to thank Matt Bai for planning the Sunday school class discussions. As Matt and I work together to sort through and tabulate your responses from these discussions, I noticed that many of the selected scriptures are my favorite scripture passages as well, which may explain why I have felt at home at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church almost from the beginning. I also felt myself wondering what scriptures weren't picked. Well, the fact of the matter is when you're only choosing 12 scriptures from a collection of 66 books, something is going to get left out. I did notice that no one chose any passages from Leviticus or Numbers. And that didn't surprise me. What surprised me more was that very few stories from the Old Testament or from the New Testament were chosen, with two exceptions. One of our children's classes, the Middlers, chose only stories, and the creation story in Genesis 1 was selected by a whole bunch of you. In general, our choices gravitated toward theology, that is, touching on who God is, who we are, and the significance of Jesus. Instruction, how we as God's people are meant to live. And poetry and prayer, through which we continue to connect with God in a very personal way. Now, figuring out how to gather up these 12 chosen scriptures and form them into a four-week preaching and worship series has been an interesting challenge. Sometimes it's been fun. For your orientation, here's where this series is headed. Today, we will be looking at a story, a story that helps us think about questions like, who is God? Who are we and why are we here? What went wrong? And how is God responding? On November 11th, next Sunday, we'll be focusing on the Lord's Prayer. But don't come expecting to hear a traditional sermon. Although I will bring a few brief reflections, we'll be singing and praying our way through this prayer. On November 18th, we'll be looking at scriptures that focus on how we are meant to live as God's people. And on this Sunday, you'll be hearing from each other. And I want to thank in advance those of you who have agreed to share about these passages that have been significant for you. And on November 25th, our final Sunday in the series, in a spirit of thanksgiving, we will sing and pray scriptures that give us vision and hope. And now, 
on to this morning's story. When we open the Bible, we find that it contains 66 books written by various authors over hundreds of years. As we begin to read it, we discover a wide diversity of perspectives and styles and contexts. There seem to be so many different threads running through it. One wonders just what is it that brings all these threads together? Is there something that brings all these threads together? In his book, God's Healing Strategy, Ted Grimsrud, who is a, a professor at Eastern Mennonite University, he explores this question. And Grimsrud concludes that running through this diverse book, this book that we call the Bible, running through it from beginning to end is a story. Even though it is told by a variety of different people from a variety of different perspectives, it is the same story. It is the story of God working to restore the divine human relationship that has been broken. Today, guided by the scriptures that you have chosen, we're going to hear that story again. We do this in Seekers class. It'll be interesting for those of you who have been in Seekers class with me this last year to listen carefully and to see if you hear it in a different way this morning. The story begins in Genesis with a text that many of you chose, either as a formative or as a favorite biblical passage. So let's listen now to this beginning, our beginning. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And so God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the waters, above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky, to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, 
and all the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was good. It was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on, on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Well, you'll notice that this story does not begin with once upon a time. It begins with, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, before there was anything else, there is God. A God who is creative, powerful, good, life-giving. And this God, with intention and with love, calls the world into being. God fashions creation out of chaos, making peace out of disorder. And God declares it good. As a part of that creation process, God creates humankind. God creates both male and female in God's image. Creative and powerful beings given responsibility to care for God's creation. Made to be in relationship with God and with each other. But although human beings are created in God's good image, they are not God. 
Human beings are created with limits. And that is where the story gets interesting. As we read further into Genesis, we find that Adam and Eve, the very first named human beings in the story, do not respect this boundary. They reject their limits by eating that forbidden fruit. Rather than trusting God and the framework that God has provided for their well-being, for their happiness, for their wholeness, they, they push against these limits. And they seek to be like God. And that's when conflict enters this story and brings turmoil into this peace-filled beginning. Adam and Eve turn away from God, and they go their own way. And that choice, that choice reverberates through the rest of the story. Human beings are now afraid of God, ashamed of their nakedness and vulnerability. Men dominate women. Humans struggle to bring fruit from the earth. Jealousy and strife result in violence. Widespread sinfulness leads to a devastating flood. The order of creation itself has been shaken. This unfortunate unfolding of events, this rupture in relationship between God and human beings and all creation sets the stage for the rest of the story throughout the Bible. We watch we wait, we wonder, how will God respond? As we continue to read and hear the story, we soon discover that God chooses not to walk away or to utterly destroy humankind. God instead chooses to reach out to the creatures that God has made and loves and seeks to restore that relationship that has been broken. We see God's commitment to what Ted Grimsrud calls God's healing strategy in the rainbow after that devastating flood. A sign of God's commitment to stay in relationship with humankind and rather than to seek to destroy the world, to seek to bring healing to the world. We see God about this work as God calls Abraham and Sarah to found a community of faith which is meant to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. God's healing strategy continues as God liberates Abraham's descendants from slavery in Egypt and giving them time in the wilderness to reorient themselves and giving them the law to shape their life as God's people and giving them land to, in which to live out their faith. Unfortunately, God's people don't always respond affirmatively to God's healing initiatives. As Israel settles into its new homeland, it wants to become like the nations around it. It turns away from God as their king and their leader and chooses a human king. And with human kings come taxation and military conscription and idolatry and economic injustice. How does God respond? 
by sending prophets, sometimes fiery prophets, to challenge corrupt kings, think about Elijah, to critique injustice, for example, Amos, and to speak of God's ongoing love in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness. Think about Hosea. But instead of following God's way, meant to lead toward shalom, toward wholeness, Israel insists on going its own way until finally this waywardness leads to the destruction of the nation and to the exile of its leaders. God's response? Again, God's response is not to walk away, but to draw near. Again, God sends prophets, but this time, this time, they speak words of hope. All you who dwell in deep darkness, a new day is dawning. You will see light. All you who are captive, you will be freed from the bonds that oppress you. All you who are brokenhearted, be comforted. Because God has not forgotten you. In fact, God is working to establish a new kingdom among you. A kingdom of justice, love, and peace. Well, eventually, the people of Israel do return to their homeland. But this promised kingdom seems a long way off. Israel is still dominated by a large empire, Rome. Economic just injustice is widespread, and revolution is in the air. It is into this tinderbox that Jesus is born. He comes with a message that is particularly appealing to those in society who are on the margins. The kingdom of God is at hand. In this kingdom, the poor are blessed and the hungry are fed. The sick and the blind and the lame are healed. Sinners are forgiven. Outcasts are welcomed. Those who are oppressed are set free. Now, many who hear this message assume that this kingdom will be ushered in by military might, that it will end the rule of their Roman oppressors. And Jesus says, no, we do not need to wage war on Rome to bring in this kingdom, because this kingdom is already here, growing among us. What you need are eyes to see it and ears to hear it and hearts to receive it. And above all, above all, courage to enter into it and to live it here and now. Jesus' message is well received by some. And it poses a powerful threat to others. And in the end, 
In the end, it gets him killed. And his followers are devastated. Until he appears to them three days after his death with living flesh, walking with them on the road and showing up behind locked doors to offer them peace and sitting at table and breaking bread with them. What did this all mean? The early church gave a lot of thought to this. Those first believers pondered the significance of Jesus. They pondered the meaning of his life and his death and his resurrection. And two of the passages that you have chosen give us a window into how they understood what Jesus was all about. These early believers seemed to understand that Jesus, Jesus was more than a good man or a wise teacher, or a compassionate healer. There was something about him that was intimately connected with God. God was with him and in him and working through him in a very special way. Let's hear one of those passages now from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light <clears throat> so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. In this passage, we see Jesus with God from the very beginning, an integral part of God's ongoing work of creation, and an integral part of God's ongoing work of reaching out to the world in love to bring light into the darkness and to show us the path through our brokenness that leads to life and to light. In this passage, we see God in Jesus getting up close and personal 
to humankind as the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in Jesus, we hear an invitation, a special invitation to enter through him into the fullness of God's love and into the fullness of God's way to accept our status as beloved children of God. The early church also pondered the meaning of Jesus' suffering and death. And that brings us to another one of your favorite passages, this one from Philippians 2. Let's hear that one now. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This text from Philippians was likely a hymn sung in the early church. And although Paul uses it here to admonish the faith community in Philippi about their attitudes toward each other, it's let this mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ. It is a hymn that connects Jesus' faithfulness to God, that is his obedience unto death, with his exaltation and eternal reign. This affirmation that God has exalted Jesus and has given him the name above all name. That Jesus Christ is Lord sustains these early believers through persecution and trial and temptation. Jesus Christ is Lord not only expresses their allegiance to Jesus, not Caesar. And this was a very radical political statement to make. It also, it also expresses their hope and their faith that God, through Jesus, is still at work in the world, despite the ongoing presence of suffering and evil and death. It expresses their hope that God is still reaching out to the world to heal and to reconcile and to restore, to bring wholeness to creation and to all humankind, and that in the end, Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, will usher in and reign victorious in God's kingdom of justice, love, and peace. This was the hope that sustained them. Well, in an abbreviated fashion, we have just gone from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And I suppose you could say that's the end of the story. 
except that it isn't. The story continues. And we, we are a part of it. We continue to write new chapters in the story as we live into the reality of God's amazing and redemptive love. We are invited to trust. We are invited to trust that no matter how far we have strayed, no matter how deep our doubt or our pain or our disillusionment, no matter how hopeless our world situation seems to be, God will not give up on us. God has not forgotten us. God will not forget us. God is here, present and working in this world. And as we see through the whole biblical story from beginning to end, God is committed to staying in relationship with this world. God is committed to staying in relationship with us. And God's persistent love continues to reach out to humankind. It continues to reach out to each one of us, offering a way toward healing and peace and the hope that we need. May we have the courage to move toward that love, to enter into its depths, and to follow together wherever it leads. Amen.